0: Hey listeners, this episode is part of our new playlist to help everybody get through these times we're living in. It's our host faves playlist.
1: Yep, these are just some of our personal favorites, ones that we had a particular affinity for, and because these are stressful and trying times, we tried to stick to the ones that weren't quite as dour. So hopefully
0: they'll give you a little lift. Stay safe. (laughs) Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and I'm Holly Fry. So, uh, summer's coming, at least in theory.
0: Sure, sure. <laughs>
1: I think, I think summer has definitely arrived where you are
0: which is Atlanta? Uh, yeah, I mean I guess technically it's still cooler than it usually would be this time of year.
1: Yeah, it, it is not warm at all. It's 57 degrees right now. We're recording this on May 30th.
0: <laughs> yeah, like I uh, think our high today might be 80, which sounds hot to some people, but for Atlanta at the end of May, that's really not.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been a we've had an unseasonably cool um May up here in in, in New England anyway, though. Uh, at least in theory, summer is either on the way or here for most, but not all, of our listeners. So it seems like a good time to talk about swimming. Wee. Yes, specifically we are talking about Annette Kellerman, who gets a lot of the credit for developing the woman's uh, one-piece bathing suit and then for making it socially appropriate for women in a lot of the English-speaking world to put on an outfit that you could actually swim in without drowning and then go out in public that way. Uh, and perhaps, kind of ironically, she was Australian, where it is definitely not coming on summer. <laughs> so, Australians, we have some Australian history today that is uh, seasonally incongruous for where you actually live.
0: Yeah, unless you happen to be uh, uh, somebody who's downloading it late in the game. In which case, sure, hooray, summer for you as well. <laughs> Annette Kellerman was born in the suburbs of Sydney, Australia. She was coy about her birth date, and it's variously cited as July 5th or 6th of 1886, 1887, or 1888. Uh, The 6th is the most frequently cited date. Her father, Frederick, was a violinist born in Australia, and her mother, Alice, was a pianist and a music teacher who was originally from France.
1: When she was young, Annette had to wear braces on her legs because of persistent weakness and not only were these braces painful to wear, but she also found them embarrassing. The cause is unclear. A few sources cite rickets or polio, and later on in her life, she speculated that it might've been a calcium deficiency. Her, According to her own account, actual doctors at the time said that it was because she had been allowed to learn to walk too early or that she had chalk in her bones. Neither of those are real things. <laughs> would have caused her to need leg braces. Uh, So, totally unclear. But the braces were a real part of her life.
0: That's what you get when you go to cartoon doctors. Uh, (laughs) Like chalk in your bones sounds like such a cartoon diagnosis. Well,
1: and chalk bones is a nickname for like one congenital bone condition, but it has nothing to do with what she was experiencing. is a totally different set of symptoms. So, very weird.
0: Yeah. Whatever the cause of her disability, eventually her father visited a doctor who recommended swimming lessons. And at first, Annette was really terrified of this plan, uh, possibly because it meant exposing her legs to people, which she did not want to do because they were visibly undeveloped. And she begged not to have to go, but her parents and the doctor were all certain that swimming would really help. So she and her brothers were taken to Frederick Cavills' baths so they could learn to swim. And the Cavills were actually a whole family of swimmers. They're in the International Swimming Hall of Fame for their combined contributions to the sport.
1: It took Annette a lot longer to get the hang of swimming than it took her brothers. They were both able to swim on their own after a handful of lessons, but it took Annette close to 20. But once she knew how to do it, as predicted, it really did help her build her strength up in her legs And with the water supporting her, she could move around without having to wear the braces.
0: Annette would later describe her gradual improvement through swimming as a process of intense joy. By the time she reached the age of 13, her muscle development was more or less typical for a child her age, although she was susceptible to muscle strains and had to wear very tightly laced boots until she was 18.
1: A lot of the swimming strokes that are recognized and used competitively today were still new or in the process of being developed and refined. So what Annette learned at first was basically the breaststroke, and that was the stroke that she used mostly when she was exercising at first. At about the age of 15, she started branching out into learning other strokes, putting dedicated effort into practicing them and getting better at them, and soon she told her parents that she wanted to start competing in swimming. Her first swimming race was a local event, and she won it.
0: Annette's father had been incredulous when she said she wanted to enter a swimming race. He had thought of swimming as something she was doing because of her disability, not as something she would seriously pursue for her own sake. But once she had that first win under her belt, he was instrumental in her progress as a competitive swimmer, essentially becoming both her trainer and her coach.
1: As soon as she started seriously competing, Annette started winning races and setting records. In 1902, at the age of about 16, she won a 100-yard championship for New South Wales and also set a world record for swimming a mile with a time of 32 minutes and 29 seconds. That same year, she started participating in long-distance swimming races and public diving demonstrations. Her time in the water wasn't only about competition, though. She started uh, doing mermaid shows in Australian aquariums along with other aquatic performances while she was still in her teens.
0: Although she was winning races and making a name for herself as a competitive swimmer, she wasn't really able to earn an income from doing so. So Annette and her father moved to England with the hope of finding more lucrative opportunities to compete and perform. Once
1: they arrived in England, they had a really hard time getting started. Although Annette already held multiple records in swimming, they didn't know anyone, and Annette didn't have a local reputation to try to build on. So her father hatched a plan to drum up some publicity. She would swim 26 miles, which was 42 kilometers, down the Thames from Putney to Blackwall. In
0: 1905, Annette, at about age 18, became the first woman to make this swim. Although it did indeed bring in a lot of media attention, the swim itself was terrible. The Thames was filthy, and Annette later said she felt like she'd swallowed big mouthfuls of oil from the surface of the river. She'd also had to dodge a lot of flotsam, garbage, tugboats, and barges along the way.
1: But afterward, a sports editor from the Daily Mirror approached her with another idea. The Daily Mirror was the first paper in the UK to use photographs rather than illustrations. And the editor thought that articles on Annette, complete with photographs of her in the scandalous swimwear that we're going to talk about a little bit more later, uh, he thought that would sell a lot of papers. So he offered to back her in an attempt to swim across the English Channel, along with paying for and writing about swims along the coast to train for it.
0: This entire enterprise was wildly successful in almost every way. Annette's training swims down the coast drew huge crowds, and the articles and their corresponding photos sold lots of papers. She swam an average of 45 miles, or 72 kilometers, per week, increasing the distance of each swim until she'd done the 24-mile stretch from Dover to Ramsgate. At that point, she thought she was ready to try to conquer the Channel. Although that's a slightly shorter distance than her swim down the Thames, swimming in the English Channel is far more difficult due to the very cold water, the waves, and the tides.
1: She made her first attempt to swim across the English Channel along with six men on August 24th of 1905. They all started their swim at about three in the morning, all from different points along the coast based on where they thought the currents and the tides would be the most advantageous. Each swimmer was accompanied by a steam tug and a rowboat in case they fell into some distress along the way. And then periodically, hot chocolate or food could be handed down to the swimmers from these boats to keep their energy up.
0: An advertiser had given Annette chocolate to eat along the way, but the combination of chocolate and the choppy water really made her seasick. The further she went, the bigger her payday would be, though, so she kept herself going through that seasickness by thinking, the longer you stick, the more you get. She stuck it out for about six and a half hours, and she was paid 30 pounds. This
1: was the first of Kellerman's three attempts to swim the English Channel. And as with her swim down the Thames, she was the first woman to make the attempt. The closest she came in these three attempts to actually crossing was about three-quarters of the way, which took ten and a half hours.
0: Later, Kellerman would say she thought she had the endurance to swim the Channel, but not the raw strength. In her 1918 book, How to Swim, she wrote that she didn't think a woman would ever successfully swim the English Channel. She was proven wrong in 1926 when Gertrude Ederle crossed in 14 hours, 39 minutes, not only swimming the channel, but beating the previous record time by more than two hours.
1: Today, there are lots of women (laughs) (laughs) swim across the English Channel, uh, including swimming it three consecutive times, like swimming it across one way and then going back and then going back across again, which is astounding to me. So... In Kellerman's first attempt to swim across the English Channel, the male swimmers who were swimming that night were allowed to be nude, but she had to wear a swimsuit that chafed her skin just terribly. And this brings us to her efforts to make suitable swimwear for women, which we will talk about more after a sponsor break. The Thames and the attempts to cross the English Channel were not Annette Kellerman's only long-distance races in the 1900s. Before leaving Australia, she had taken multiple long-distance swims down the Yarra River, including becoming the first woman to complete a 10-mile stretch. In 1905, she participated in a race down the Seine, where she tied for third with with Thomas William Burgess. In her account of this race and how to swim, she wrote that well-meaning spectators kept calling out that she was almost there and had just two bridges more. And when she realized she was not almost there, and uh, she became just really discouraged because she had worn herself out doing what she thought was her final push to the finish line. So when Burgess caught up to her and saw that she was crying in a very lovely show of sporting behavior, he stayed with her and encouraged her for the rest of the ra- of the race. And that is how they came to tie. In June of 1906, Kellerman also won a 22-mile or 36-kilometer race down the Danube. Uh,
0: I think anyone also who has ever run a race knows the, the ire of, please don't tell me if you're almost there when you're not. When you're not, no. <laughs> anyway,
1: it was a little bit unclear to me whether these were the people in the guide boat or the people who were just spectators who were saying this. Right. But, like, she... They, they got her a couple times. And then in,
0: like, time number three of them being like, you're almost there, she was like, no, I'm not. Well, right, and it's almost always well-intentioned, like, if yeah. you, but... I- let this be a, a note, if you are ever spectating a sporting event, please don't fib to the participants, <laughs> because it does more to harm their head game than, than help. Yeah. Uh, and in most of these events, Kellerman was one of very few women, and sometimes she was the only woman. And she typically swam them wearing a swimsuit that was actually made for men.
1: So this was not unheard of in Australia at this point. Uh, swimming was already a more established sport in Australia than it was in the United Kingdom or the United States. But it was astonishing in a lot of the rest of the English speaking world, where water was for bathing, not for swimming. Bathing meant getting into the water a little way and you might wade or play or maybe float a little out there, but you didn't really swim. And a lot of people didn't even know how to swim. The idea of uh, a man-made swimming pool was also still quite recent at this point. Like, there had not even been one built for the Olympics yet. So, like, bathing was a thing that happened at a beach,
0: whether it was, like, a lakeside beach or a seashore beach. It did not really happen in a pool. And even if you wanted to swim, if you were a woman around the turn of the 20th century, your bathing attire was not something you could actually swim in. The standard bathing costume for women was essentially a dress with a length that ranged within a couple of inches above or below the knee. It had a blousy top and puffy, usually short sleeves, sometimes with a sailor's collar. It was cinched, belted, or ribboned at the waist and worn with stockings and bathing slippers or sometimes even bathing boots that went all the way up the calves. And many women wore their bathing clothes with corsets and other underpinnings.
1: Here is what Annette Kellerman had to say about these outfits. Quote: There is no more reason why you should wear those awful water overcoats, those awkward, unnecessary, lumpy, quote, bathing suits than there is that you should wear lead chains. Heavy bathing suits have caused more deaths by drowning than cramps. I am certain there isn't a single reason under the sun why everybody should not wear lightweight suits. Anyone who persuades you to wear the heavy, skirty kind is endangering your
0: life. Just thinking about wearing tights into the water is a horrifying prospect to me. (laughs) Oh, I don't know why. It just kind of grosses me out. (laughs) Uh, For competitive women swimmers, there was a grudging exception to the standard of dress. They could wear a men's bathing suit, which was more like a t-shirt and shorts, sometimes constructed all as one piece. But this also starts a whole chicken and egg situation. Women weren't supposed to be seen in attire that they could actually swim in, which created a huge barrier for entry for the sport of swimming.
1: Yeah, people were like, well, I guess you can wear a men's suit for this race. That left the question of, like, all the training you would need to do to be able to compete in the race in the first place was this whole social standard of what was acceptable for women to wear that led Kellerman to invent a new swimsuit. In 1905, she was scheduled for a swimming performance at London's Bath Club, and some of the royal family was to be in attendance. The men's bathing suit that she had been wearing was determined to be inappropriate because it was too revealing. So, Kellerman bought a pair of black stockings, and she sewed them to the legs of her men's bathing suit creating what was effectively a one-piece garment that covered her from her shoulders
0: to her feet. From there, she began tweaking and refining this original design, eventually developing a one-piece, form-fitting garment without sleeves. The lengths of the legs varied from full length and stocking-like to stopping at the thigh.
1: Although this would be considered pretty modest swimwear by a lot of today's standards, it was not at all modest by the standards of the day. Like we said before the first break, the very idea of a woman in public in such a garment was enough to sell newspapers. It's widely reported that in 1907, Kellerman was arrested for indecency on Revere Beach in Massachusetts while wearing one of these swimsuits. Although there's no arrest in the logbooks, it's a story that came up again and again and again during her own lifetime, including from her own mouth. (laughs) Like, I don't think she made this up But people have noted that, like, they can't find a document that actually details the arrest.
0: In spite of heavy resistance to the idea of women being out in public so relatively unclothed, Kellerman persisted. She launched her own line of women's swimwear, some of which came with a modesty panel, which was a close-fitting skirt that went from waist to knee, covering the thighs but bringing along far less fabric and weight than the previous era of swimsuits. She became so closely associated to this type of swimwear that soon people were calling anything that looked like it an Annette Kellerman or just a Kellerman, although it was a name she trademarked and went to court to defend when she needed to. And at some beaches, Kellerman-type suits were actually banned. As Kellerman became more famous and her swimsuits
1: became more widely adopted, it gradually became more acceptable for women to be seen in them and for women to participate in the sport of swimming and compounding that for swimming in general to be seen as a recreational activity. Some of this was part of an overall growth in the popularity of swimming, but it wasn't just happenstance. Kellerman was an active advocate for women to learn to swim, and for swimming to be seen as an acceptable form of exercise, recreation, and competition for women. She wrote, quote, I am not trying to shut men out of swimming. There is enough water in the world for all of us. But as men can indulge in so many other sports where women can make a poor showing or cannot compete at all, swimming may well be called the women's sport.
0: But unfortunately, this progress did not apply to all women. Even though Kellerman herself wrote things like, quote, there is nothing more democratic than swimming and a clean, cool, beautiful, cheap thing we all from cats to kings can enjoy, swimming was not actually accessible to everyone. In the United States, public beaches and, as they were built, public swimming pools were often racially segregated. And the indigenous population was barred from many public swimming areas in Australia. So while Kellerman was a staunch advocate for making swimming accessible to women, that was really most applicable to white women.
1: And to add another layer to all of this... A lot of the swimming strokes that she learned as a child and then helped to popularize uh, as an adult were either patterned after or directly taught to white swimmers by indigenous Australians and indigenous people from elsewhere in the Pacific. So, uh, like, a lot of the art and skill of swimming drew from indigenous knowledge, but indigenous people were excluded from a lot of public swimming locations.
0: In addition to contributing to the popularity and, at least for some, accessibility of swimming, Annette Kellerman's fame and skill led to a completely different aspect of her career, vaudeville and Hollywood. We're going to talk about that after we pause for a sponsor break.
1: of Annette Kellerman's fame as a swimmer came because she was uh, naturally a performer. She was definitely talented. I don't want to overlook that at all. She legitimately won races and she set records and she was one of the best swimmers of her era. But a lot of the attention that she got for those successes was due to showmanship and an openness with her body that was not really typical for the time. A woman swimmer was already relatively novel in a lot of places, and a woman swimmer who flaunted social expectations to proudly wear a scandalous swimsuit was a real attention-getter.
0: This attention actually led her to a career in vaudeville. In 1906, having performed at the London Hippodrome and won numerous races in Europe, She sailed for the United States to perform at amusement parks and theaters.
1: Her vaudeville act involved a combination of swimming, high diving, water stunts, and mermaid shows, for which she often designed all of her own costumes. She would eventually donate all of her costumes and memorabilia to the Sydney Opera House. We will put a link in the show notes where you can go look at them. Uh, There's a lot, there are lots and lots of pictures of this collection that you can browse through, and they are fascinating.
0: Although water shows already existed in vaudeville, Kellerman added a lot of her own flair and incorporated ballet and other movement in what would become a precursor to synchronized swimming. Her biggest production at the New York Hippodrome included a core of 200 mermaids all swimming in tandem. She also tried her hand at other types of performance, including male impersonation and high-wire walking. By 1914, Kellerman had become one of the highest-paid performers in vaudeville. Also,
1: during her time in vaudeville, she got married after proposing to her manager, Louis Sullivan, who was known as Jimmy, in
0: 1912. Running parallel to her time in vaudeville, Kellerman also began acting in films. Her first films were a series of silent shorts made while she was trying to work out a contract dispute between two different theater managers. Later on, when other people started to copy her water act and her pay in vaudeville consequently plummeted, she turned to film almost entirely.
1: Kellerman's film roles involved lots of water and swimming, and sometimes they also played off the fact that the South Pacific was pretty exotic to American audiences, which meant that Kellerman herself was often seen as
0: exotic as well. Her first full-length movie was Neptune's Daughter, which came out in 1914. She played a mermaid wearing sheer bodysuits that matched her skin tone. In 1916, she starred in a film called The Daughter of the Gods, which was a fantasy drama. She played Anisha, who was the daughter in question. In this film, she had a scene in which she was completely nude, although part of her body was covered by her hair. It was one of the first fully nude appearances by a major star in a non-pornographic movie. Her final film, Venus of the South Seas, came out in 1924.
1: There are definitely people who call the Daughter of the Gods role like the first nude appearance by a woman in film. And that seems a little, There, it needs a little more caveats than that. <laughs> um Kellerman mostly retired from performing in the 1930s. She and her husband moved to California where she opened a health food store. She was apparently a vegetarian her whole life. By this point, she'd published books on swimming and on fitness and one called Physical Beauty and How to Keep It. This one, to a modern reader, is maybe a little weird. It simultaneously acknowledges the double standards that women face regarding our bodies and appearances, but at the same time, it is a how-to manual for how to have an ideal body. And it clearly spells out that the point in doing so is to keep from losing your figure and consequently your husband as you age. So in some ways, <laughs> like in some ways, she was way ahead of her time. And in some ways, she, she was squarely a
0: product of it. This system is really bad, but here's how to buy in. <laughs> yeah, that...
1: Yeah, Uh that book also, like, it's a little... I don't really know what uh, what Annette Kellerman's racial views were about, like, the contributions of indigenous swimmers to swimming and all of those sort of stuff, but she has a couple of lines in this book that, like, you, you can tell there are some problematic racial and, and racist views in there. Like, at one point, she says that the only people who need corsets are children and savages, and by savages in quotation marks she means africans like huh don't want to don't want to gloss over that but like that's it's a weird intrusion in a book that's definitely about um you know m- middle class white women retaining their figures <laughs> which has its own set of social play <laughs> kellerman also established health spas she wrote newspaper columns on health and beauty She stridently advocated for women to be encouraged to be fit and active, and she wrote a children's book called Fairy Tales of the South Seas.
0: But in a lot of ways, she had become famous for her bathing suits and for the body under them. In 1909, Dr. Dudley Sargent of Harvard had taken the measurements of about 1,000 women and compared them to the measurements of the Venus de Milo. Kellerman's were closest, and he dubbed her the perfect woman, which, along with that Revere beach arrest, uh, became part of her ongoing marketing.
1: In the Harvard collections, like the Harvard special collections, are still boxes and boxes of these women's measurement cards that were part of this study. (laughs) (laughs) Which, baffles me on a number of different... It doesn't baffle me that the cards are still in the collection. It baffles me that, like, let's measure a thousand women and compare them to a statue. (laughs) Uh, Was a study in the first place. So, uh, her fame for her figure, and the clothing, being bathing suits on it, persisted long after the first decade of the 1900s, which was really when Annette Kellerman had, you know, introduced and become famous for this bathing suit. In 1935, an Associated Press reporter tracked her down and got her opinion on some sartorial hubbub in Yonkers, New York that was over women wearing uh, shorts. She recalled that it had only been a couple of decades since that time she was arrested, and then said, quote, but I've always preached the importance of caring for the female figure, so the girls will have to look to their shapes and not to the courts when they appear in suits. But remember, please, I am not a nudist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, An Associated Press headline from 1937 read, quote, Annette Kellerman still draws crowd. Legs of diving Venus hold former beauty. So, like, people were still basically writing about her body years after she stopped performing with it. Like, she was still the go-to person to talk to about scandalous swimwear and women's figures. (laughs)
0: Kellerman and her husband returned to Australia a couple of times during the 1940s, including during World War II when she entertained troops in the South Pacific. In
1: 1952, Esther Williams played her in the film Million Dollar Mermaid. Kellerman was not a fan of this film. She called it, quote, a silly little yarn and also, quote, a namby-pamby attempt. She was frustrated that she was played by an American in this movie, and also that the film was more of a swimming spectacular than an actual biography of her. Uh, As kind of a side note, she was also not a fan of the bikini after it was introduced, (laughs) calling it far too revealing and noting that almost nobody had the figure to actually wear one.
0: Kellerman and her husband moved back to Australia for good in 1970. She was inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame in 1974, and she died on November 6, 1975, at the age of roughly 87.
1: Most sources say 87 or 88. It's it's a little... Her late 80s. Her late 80s. Who wants to end with a poem? I do. I'm really excited we've gotten to end some episodes with poems lately. (laughs) This poem ran in the Boston Post on November 7th of 1908. No more the Gibson bathing girl shall grace the Newport summer whirl. Annette declares her garments wrong at both ends too extremely long. The Gibson girl may be a peach as she perambulates the beach, but now if in the swim she'd be, she must with sweet Annette agree. Her heavy skirt she must replace with filmy raiment for the race think you, she will consent to dress in such approach to nothingness? <laughs> uh so that's Annette Kellerman. Sometimes you will see her name spelled with two N's instead of one N, which was apparently a nod to her German heritage that she used when she published her books. Uh, but most sources in, as biographies have it just with one N.